unjunk your sleep during Mattress Firm's President's Day sale. Save up to $500 on Sealy when you get a king bed for the price of a queen or queen for a twin. Or shop Tempur-Pedic, the most highly recommended bed in America, and you can save up to $500 on adjustable mattress sets. And get a $300 instant gift good toward sleep accessories. In stock for immediate delivery, only at Mattress Firm. Restrictions apply. See store for details. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals, and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals, and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forced Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Hello, and welcome to episode 55. Today, I'm joined by Yvette Render and Helen Manahan uh, of BPA Quality. They will be talking about training and coaching in a virtual and also the hybrid world as people start to return to the offices. So let's get on with this. There's lots of tips to to hear and share. Um, Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to another another episode of uh, Get Out of Rap. Today, very topically, we're going to be talking about the realities of uh, virtual learning, uh, the benefits and tips to avoid some of the pitfalls that you find and sharing a bit of best practice. And joining me today, a firm favourite of the podcast, known to many here in the UK, is Helen Manahan. Helen is from BPA Quality. Hi, Helen. Hi. And hello. And joining from the United States, from the US of A, um, is Yvette Render. Yvette has worked for BPA Quality for some time and is rooted in uh, training, is a real subject matter expert, and joins on a kind of multinational podcast episode today. So, hi, Yvette. Thanks very much for joining. Hello. Nice to be here. And in fact, maybe just to give us a bit of background, um, how long you've been you've been in training and, and how you've kind of seen it change even prior to um, the, the pandemic. Um, I've been in training a oh, minimum of 22 years, I'd say, and prior to that, even teaching. So I've always wow. kind of stood in front of an audience, whether it's children or adults or or maybe they're one and the same. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I've been doing this for many years. And, you know, um, traditionally, training was very much standing in front of a group in, in a, a, almost a classroom setting. And I think over the years, it, it's definitely evolved to another, uh, another form. A lot of training takes place, of course, virtually um, has evolved into virtual training. Like clients were asking us for virtual training for, I'd say, the past at least 10 years. Um, they weren't always sure what they wanted in that virtual environment. And a lot of the times they just gave up and said, come into the classroom. I think, um, you know, this, um, our experience in this past year has really helped our clients embrace the fact that virtual learning is really beneficial and there's so many benefits to it. So um, I I think, you know, um, some of the realities of virtual learning have been experienced throughout this year as well, but I think it's really been a benefit to most of our clients as the year progressed. So for those people that were asking for virtual training, Mm-hmm. Um, even prior to the pandemic, is that because 
certainly you're challenged a lot more in the US geographically that the just the the cost and the logistics involved in in training so people lent more towards looking at virtual maybe before we would be used to here in the UK I think that is one aspect but I think one of the greater aspects was it, it's really difficult in a contact center environment to get every agent or every supervisor off the floor at the same time into the same room even even booking rooms is very uh, challenging for contact centers um, oftentimes they would attempt to book a room and you know find that somebody else um, preempted them and took that room from them so I, I think there are a lot of challenge, challenges logistically for contact centers. Um, I don't think the clients minded me hopping on a plane and uh, you know, changing my lifestyle in any way. I think they were quite happy for that to happen. I was as well, so there's no problem there. But um, I, I think it's very difficult from a contact center point of view. So that is one of the reasons they wanted it. And you know, they wanted it, but at the same time, they didn't really have the technology to support it. You know, they weren't, they, they may have, um, they may have had conference rooms that had big screens or, you know, uh, audio, but it really wasn't a suitable environment at that time for virtual learning for the most part. I love that about the, uh, <clears throat> the rooms. It's kind of like a currency within the contact centers, isn't it? If you have a room booking, you can, Absolutely. you can negotiate. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the stronger man always wins. Or <laughs> <laughs> woman. Yes. Um, when it comes to then the, the realities of virtual learning, if we think back now, you know, this has been what over a year. Um, what's kind of stood out to you? What are the things that you do want to share with people today then? Hmm. Well, you know, we've had um, over a year now of successful um, virtual workshops with our clients. And um, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, from a context center point of view, it seems to be much easier to schedule in the sessions. Um, you know, um, it's less time traveling to the venue for some of the supervisors or managers who may come from other contact centers to join their peers in, in a center. Um, there's less time even traveling through the contact center, getting distracted on the floor and so on. Um, so I, I think there's so many benefits um, in the contact center world to just, you know, clicking on this, the join button and seeing us virtually. virtually. Um, I think some of the other benefits also are in the classroom, in the virtual classroom. There's definitely a lot of less distractions for the, for the audience and the participants. Uh, they're able to really just look at the screen, enjoy themselves, interact with uh, those on the screen. Um, there's no tray of biscuits suddenly arriving in the conference room. You know, everyone can sit back with their coffee or their tea and just enjoy the, the virtual learning. So I, I think there are so many benefits to that virtual learning that we didn't even realize perhaps at the start of our whole experience throughout this COVID pandemic. When it comes to, um, you mentioned their workshops, mm -hmm. is, is that terminology, does that allow you to differentiate? What, what do you mean by a workshop? Is there a set number of people or? Um, workshop versus training, is that yeah. where you're going with yeah. the question? Yeah. Um, Big difference. Get in there. I was getting there slowly. <laughs> yeah. Training, I look at almost a more of you stand in front of a group and teach them something. And really a workshop draws on the experience of the participants. And that's really uh, one of our strengths at BPA. What we really want to do is have the uh, participants involved in the, in the workshop, as opposed to 
um, any type of lecture or teaching environment where we're the expert and participants are uh, just absorbing information. Now, don't get me wrong, workshops, uh, our participants learn an awful lot, but they learn from a variety of different ways. They learn from, perhaps from the, the presenter, they're learning from their peers. Um, they're also um, learning more from the experiences they may have had in the past. So there's a very big distinction between the training and workshop environment. And at EPA, we definitely lean more towards the workshop environment to gain that buy-in from the group that you know they're really drawing from their experiences and peer experiences. Right, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. That I mean, words matter. We know that, right, Martin? And, and by calling it a workshop, it kind of infers engagement, right? The, the Also the element of a bit of work, right? So yeah. you, you have to make those opportunities for all the attendees to really actively engage. It's training should be an active process. If people aren't engaged and they aren't active, they're not going to kind of maximize their, their time uh, in the session. So it really is about kind of engendering people's uh, peaking their interest and then helping them to, to want to get involved and, and to engage. And we do that in a variety of ways. And if I could just jump in there, um, Martin, again, Helen, you're making a, a really great point about that engagement. And one of the possible pitfalls with virtual learning is a participant can join turn off that camera and be doing work in the background, you know, personal work, something other than what we're uh, reviewing in the workshop. Um, but with the workshop environment, if we're actively engaging the, the group and, you know, breaking out possibly into um, break rooms as well, that participant who thought that they would just spend the next 90 minutes uh, finishing up the emails that they needed to finish, they're now engaged in, in group learning with, with their teammates and peers. So it definitely helps encourage that participation as opposed to just tuning out throughout the training and the workshop. I guess that, that when thinking about this topic, I was thinking about the two of you actually and the difference between doing this virtually and, and, in, and in a room, not wanting to get ahead of myself and think about what you might be saying around tips and things like that. but. Have you, how have you adapted to the change in, I'm just thinking about your, if you're physically in a room doing a workshop, you can judge if someone is either engaged or maybe a bit confused. Is it, is it the same virtually or are you just a lot more aware of um, looking at people on the screen? How does it work? Great point. As a presenter, you need to flex your style in any type of workshop, so whether it's in-person or virtual. But um, in-person, I, I definitely hear where you're going with that, Martin, because in-person, you can. there's such a benefit to body language and, and observing body language, and for the group to observe your body language. So in a, an in-person environment, that's a really strong element of that whole dynamic, and it's your image as well as the image of the group. Um, in a virtual environment, we really, as a presenter, need to be very aware of our body language. You know, I tend to use my hands a lot, as you might be able to see, <laughs> but I use my hands a lot. And in a virtual environment, you need to be a lot more careful with that type of gesture. But you also, you need to be aware of um, what's going on with, with the participants. And one of the things we do really well at BPA, and I've, I've had the opportunity to present with Helen quite often, um, it's really great to have two presenters from BPA together in a workshop, one observing body language, comments in the chat, 
any, any kind of housekeeping that needs to be done. As, and you have then the presenter who's able to just really focus on um, reviewing the material and, and creating the workshop content. Um, but the person that's attending to really assist in that role is looking at the body language and looking at who may be tuning out or who may suddenly have a strange reaction, uh, maybe a strange uh, look on their face when a certain topic is presented. So it's really important for that person to be able to speak up and then really help guide the group to open up about any challenges they have or anything they may be buying into and so on. So having two presenters is really a great benefit when, when it's possible. I love that point of uh, around when you know you're you're attuned to if people aren't buying in, and that's something that we that we do like to do is actively encourage everybody to to challenge if they want to. Um, any any of the points that we're exploring in the groups is it, really important for people. We don't just want to hear it when it's resonating. We want to know if if people have more questions. That's when we get really excited, and we're able to then kind of you know try and break whatever concept it is that we're looking at together. So yeah, definitely important um, because people are less likely, I think, to come forward if they're thinking, "I'm not quite sure about this" or "I don't quite agree." So really good to be able to pick up on that and, and engage people further and draw them in. Yeah, absolutely, and it, oftentimes that individual voicing their opinion. It's really it resonates with two or three other people um, listening in as well. So it really helps uh, solve a problem before a problem gets out of hand. So great point, Helen. Just thinking about so the reality, you know, the, the whole topic, realities of virtual learning and benefits and tips. Um, does that start with obviously the content? And naturally, we're all from the same company. We know our content is great. Everyone's loving it at the moment. Um, so let's say that's a given. But do you treat the content differently? What's your preparation like? Is it different in a in a virtual world? Can you maybe talk us about even the bit that happened that you're doing slightly differently, or you'd want to share for people even before delegates or people join the workshop? So that kind of beforehand. Oh, I love that question. It's always backup, backup, backup. We always have our backup. <laughs> so you can have, you know, a perfect outline for a client and suddenly um, the participants join the workshop and you realize, wow, this isn't going to fit for this group at all. Perhaps they've already been through this type of, um, they, maybe they've been through a lot of management training in the past and they think they know it all um, about that particular topic. Or it could very well be, maybe we overestimated um, the level of learning that this, this group has had at, to this point. So we always need that backup to be able to flex our style and be able to move in another direction and, and provide that group with what they need and at, at that level they're at at that time. So um, we just recently had an experience there. We had a, um, you know, asked all our right questions. Um, we, uh, you know, had the client actually um, really gave us a, a lot of detail about what level of training the groups uh, had been through in the past. And uh, we created our workshop and it really wasn't hitting the mark. And it wasn't hitting the mark um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think maybe the manager wasn't quite as in tune with his group as he thought. So we had to instantly change our direction. And um, long story short, I have to say it's one of the best workshops we've delivered. And I, I the client was extremely happy. 
at the close of the workshop. So again, as a presenter, you need to be able to do that and ready to do that at any point. And I, I think ego is such an important thing. We need to put our own egos to the side and just start from the drawing board again and, and do whatever that client needs to make that successful for their, for their participants. That's such an important point about that you you bring up there about ego. There's no room for it as as a trainer, right? You you've got to be in service, and it can't just be um, words. You have to be there in service to facilitate, to explore, to kind of co-create. So yeah, no no place for egos, and no place for thinking that you have all the answers because uh, to teach is to learn twice, right? So. And that um, so does that mean that you do a lot of kind of what if planning beforehand so what if the group has a different they turn up and they've got a different understanding or do you have all of this because it's a you, you can have all the content in the world but then I guess it's kind of which okay we know what's happening now so let's revert to this option let's revert to that option I think uh, the phrase what if is almost a doom and gloom phrase right and it could actually bring us down as presenters um, because it, it almost generates that feeling of worry. What if this may occur? I think for me, it's more of a, wow, this group may really like this material. Or, oh, this group may really benefit from this material. So it's always on hand to the side and, and ready. If we're able to really take that training and workshop up a notch and present something that is going to turn their world around, we have it ready sitting there for them if they're at the stage for that learning. So it's always, you know, how I'm excited to present something else, something more to them if we possibly can. Right, it's about flexing in the moment. And and, um, and I know we've spoken about this, Martin, offline before, that we've got such a lot of rich content now uh, that we really can differentiate. Um, and it's more a case of you're never going to immediately know uh, if it's going to resonate and if you've really hit the mark to a vet's earlier point. Sometimes you do need to kind of be a bit quick on your feet and and, and flex and maybe, you know, take a few things out and pop a few things in um, just to make sure that it, it fits the recipe that's unfolding. And what about your the tools that you have at your disposable, uh, disposable, disposal that we all have now? <laughs> Um, through Zoom and, and Teams, how do you utilize them in that kind of the engaging workshop? And how long did it take you to get comfortable flying with it? Personally, I would say, you know, a lot of the technology is so user-friendly that, you know, again, if you kind of avoid that what-if scenario and just go with, well, we're all in this together, there, there may be some tech issues, but really, um, for the most part, I, I think the technology has been really reliable and user-friendly. So um, I think our participants have found it very, um, very uh, easy to use as well. But from my point of view, there haven't been that many challenges. I don't know if, your thoughts on it, Helen. What are your, what are your I thoughts? think um, the only challenge or the, it's a difference, really not a challenge, has been that because of this new appetite for, you know, workforce management planners to, to kind of sign off on training because to a vet's earlier point, it's a lot easier to be very precise about it's going to happen at this point. There's no travel. There's none of those overheads. What that has meant has people have been favoring kind of slightly shorter workshops, whereas we it, traditionally you might have turned up for, for two days and been on site for two days delivering, you know, six or seven hours a day. Um, people have an appetite now for kind of these bite-sized learning sessions that can, you could maybe, for example, do one or two modules every week for a series of 
weeks um, and in the meantime you get the opportunity to kind of practice your skills in bed and then you know bring your learnings and questions back to the sessions but what that has meant is that change in format from where you'd build quite strong connections and relationships up front and then work together over a series of days face to face where that's been removed I think the way that you do activities has changed a bit and Yvette made the great point that a lot of the tech is really user friendly so we have for example in in lovely zoom like we are now we've got our breakout rooms which are just fab for creating those little kind of buzz sessions where people can go away and have those um those more intimate moments before they then come back to the main group for a plenary um but it has meant that we've had to flex a bit in terms of the way that we run activities if you only have a 90 minute session with a group you can't do too many breakout rooms or you risk, uh, you risk kind of you know, breaking up the session too much. So some of the activities, whereas before everybody would disperse to a different corner of the bricks and mortar training location, now you tend to do them more as a group, but really actively encourage people to be chiming in. Um, and I know Yvette made a great observation, which I'll let her share about the beauty of um, different personalities, types and preferences and what um, this online environment does for them. Do you know what I'm talking about there, about a conversation we had the other day, and I loved your point. Yeah, I think it's a, a really important um, aspect of uh, virtual training. Um, in any in um, in-person session, when you have a whole group together, um, some of the more reserved attendees will almost dread joining that group. Uh, they're suddenly pushed into a group environment. Uh, they know they'll be there, let's say, for two days with, with this group. And they may feel there's an expectation to almost shine and, and you know, be shouting out their responses and, and doing lots of group activities and standing in front of a group. So I really think sometimes for some personalities, um, in-person learning can be very, very daunting. Some individuals thrive. They love it. They love standing in front of a group or sitting amongst their peers and having that connection and bond. But others may dread it. Whereas virtual learning, some of the more reserved attendees, they don't even need to speak on mic, they can actually put their, their comments in the chat. And, you know, we've seen um, throughout this year, some people writing, I mean, whole paragraphs in the, in the chat, rather than just coming on mic and expressing what they'd like to say. And um, so I, I think from that point of view, um, virtual learning can really be a very positive experience for some of the more reserved attendees. Um, and it's really interesting. A lot of the times when I'll, you know, I may read out a paragraph, I, I see in the chat for one of the attendees. And when I ask them to elaborate maybe on a, a point, that's when they suddenly have that courage to come on mic. Because now that they've broken the ice, they don't feel they have to uh, fight for airtime, perhaps, whatever it is that's holding them back. But they feel a lot more comfortable once they've been invited to speak at that point. So most of the time, they will come on mic eventually. It's a great level of, sorry about I cut you there. You go ahead. Yeah, and no, I was going to say it really can be a great leveler, and I I know this is slightly off off topic, but still um, still bears relevance. So so please bear with me. <laughs> but um, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there there was a bit of a, a feminist slant on the idea of everybody kind of showing up on these. Everybody has the same size in terms of your physicality when you're in a Zoom call or in a Teams call, and so uh, maybe a very diminutive. Um, younger woman for example may actually have as much presence and as much 
stage time, as it were, as you know, somebody who might be a bit more physically uh, imposing. So that's been quite helpful, I think. And to a vet's point, when you can further encourage and support people by first validating their ideas in their really comfy, happy place, which is maybe the written word, then when you kind of draw that out, then they, they get their um, they get their confidence to then elaborate further. Yeah, that's a great point. Do you find, or have you found, maybe even initially, how best to, have you had to be a bit more structured in going around the room and asking people to talk in case, because people can't have the non-verbal cues to not over-talk or interrupt someone. Do you have to kind of administer that a bit more differently? Do you have to administer that differently in virtual or not? You know, it's interesting because I, um, from a global global perspective, that experience is very, very different. Here in America, people talk over each other. <laughs> it's just the way it is. And it's it's almost accepted in a lot of ways. You know, if you're in an a, um, in, in-person environment, uh, you may have a group of people and everyone's talking at the same time. And, and it's really interesting because uh, suddenly when uh, a point is being made, everyone starts to quiet down and they hear that point being made. So it's, it kind of works itself out. It's a very strange dynamic, but it really does seem to work itself out. Um, on, on line, I, I think people have um, been naturally courteous to one another. It's something that I personally haven't had to have too much structure around. It seems that the um, groups themselves have been self-monitoring a little bit. And um, you know, someone starts to speak, another one just instantly stops. So it's a little, actually a little bit easier in a virtual environment, whereas a classroom, sometimes as the presenter, you will say, okay, guys, we really need to uh, let uh, Helen speak, let's say. And, and then everyone does, but it's a very loose environment in, in the US when it comes to that. Now, I may be oversimplifying it, and there may be some critics out there right now saying to themselves, well, that's crazy, but it really does naturally work out if you're able to um, really have that presence as the presenter. Uh, you're able to really help that group tone it down if they need to. Yeah, that's that's definitely been our experience of it, hasn't it? And I, I think it's it's true you are, and I know that um, our colleague Sophia always mentions this, as a, as a trainer and as a facilitator online, you're really holding the space for people. You're kind of, you're you're holding the whole session. So there is there is an element of being aware of that, but but yeah, the, the participants that we've had, we've been blessed with some very, very, well, consummate professionals basically, and they all do very much self-manage and give each other enough air time. It's been very respectful. And I've been delighted over the course of the pandemic to see how, great everybody's mute etiquette has got generally speaking and one thing that is fab which you don't have in a face-to-face world is the ability to mute people (laughs) (laughs) just if somebody you know doesn't know that they're on mic and then you can hear you know the, the the realities of working from home and you can hear a dog or a child or a washing machine you can just pop them on mute quite useful I'd like to do that with my kids sometimes I wonder if that's making us more mindful and better communicators anyway better listeners because it's it's a really good point if i'm if i spend some of the meeting on mute most of the meeting and i think oh i want to make a point um i will think about the point i want to make far more because i'm having to take that physical action of muting unmuting myself i wonder if it's going to make us better 
communicators at the end of this. That's a really great observation. And I think you have something there. Um, I think as someone's even contemplating taking themselves off mute, they're formulating their, their, uh, their, their comments in some way, whether it's an observation that they're making or uh, a key point. So I think that's an excellent point. I'm going to be listening out for that. Yeah, people weighing their words. It goes two ways, though, right? Particularly when you're trying to spark, um, you know, get people involved and, and get people brainstorming in, in training sessions. So you want a, a healthy balance. And I think that's why Yvette and I are always so um, so keen to let people know that the chat is always there if they prefer to just punch something into the chat rather than waiting their turn, as it might be on, on mic, as you would in any normal conversation. So it's almost like there's another medium, there's another channel going on in, in, in parallel, yeah. which is pretty cool. Do you utilise for participants, I guess, or does it depend by course type, um, the other tools like whiteboard or um, reactions? Yeah, we're big fans of reactions, definitely, particularly mm -hmm. when somebody does have the have the the floor, as it were, and they're making a, a point that really resonates. And um, when when we start with the reactions, then often colleagues will follow suit, which is is really good to see. Whiteboard, yeah, again, dependent on the the, the dynamics in the session and the type of activities that we're doing, but can be really useful, particularly if people are going into breakouts to then come back and do the plenary with, with whiteboards. Yeah. And I find our clients are very encouraging with one another uh, when it comes to reactions. If, you know, one of the more reserved individuals puts a, a, a comment in the chat, you suddenly start seeing lots of likes or lots of hearts and lots of smiles uh, coming through so that peers are actually encouraging them to participate as well. So it's, it's a chain reaction. It's a really nice thing to see. That's great to hear. So I think we're, we're sort of generally talking about um, the benefits. What other sort of benefits or tips would you would you want to share? Hmm. Some of the possible pitfalls is that? <laughs> yeah, both. Yeah. yeah, and there can be many. Uh, there can be many in a, an in-person session. There can be many in a virtual. But when it comes to virtual, if we're really just looking at virtual, I think one of uh, the big pitfalls, which I'm sure we've all experienced at different times, is um, unreliable technology. So you really need to feel confident that your technology, as the presenter, your technology is going to work, that you, your signal is strong, that there's not going to be any interruptions or, or challenges there. But also the technology um, from the client side, um, you know, each participant. Um, so people are, I think at this point um, in the year, I, I, I think most participants joining on their own have sorted out their own personal technology they know how to join effectively. They know they join on time. Uh, they can be heard. They can be seen. I, I think a lot of people have ironed that out for themselves at home. Um, one of the challenges is now that uh, we almost have a hybrid environment where some people are in the office, some are at home still. Some of the people in the office are attempting to use conference room technology that they're not familiar with, let's say, or um, that somebody else set up for them and they just walk in to find maybe the audio wasn't set up correctly, then they're scrambling to call an IT guy. So I think there's still some of that challenge when um, um, people are trying to join from a conference room setting in a, a virtual environment. But from, for the most part, the individual technology seems to be working quite effectively. What are your thoughts, Helen, on that? 
nearly committed the cardinal sin and didn't take myself off mute there but I've done it so that that's one of the pitfalls isn't it when people you know kind of have that flash of inspiration and and they're talking and everybody's going they don't know and then afterwards mm-hmm. it never quite they never quite managed to formulate it in the same way and you can tell they feel a bit crestfallen one, one of the pitfalls to avoid um I think one of the biggest things and and you get this in any kind of training but I I feel like it's more um I do, it just feels more at the forefront uh, with with the online sessions is is that the evaporation factor of training so the important thing is obviously not only that it's super interesting and that that participants enjoy themselves but it has to kind of translate into actionable changes right so behavior change that's the whole point so there's there's a real piece for me there is a pitfall if you're not helping people to be accountable and you're not helping them to set those smart goals particularly if you're doing modules week to week for example that people know that the expectation is that they will put something into practice so they reflect before we leave the session they make a pledge to put something into practice over the week and then they come back and they know they've got that expectation there that kind of nowhere to hide they're going to have to kind of speak up and and say how it was for them so that's a pitfall but also how to mitigate it there you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) and when you think um is there have you found like a, an optimum number of people to attend? Is, it, is there a number where virtual becomes too many? Or does, again, is it more about expectation setting of what you're there to do? Great point. Um, it, it's managing the group. And we, we definitely recommend because we, we are, um, we deliver workshops versus training or lectures generally. Um, it's more of a workshop. So we want that participation. We want everyone to feel comfortable and not rushed through whatever exercise that they're doing. So we, we definitely recommend, now that's a pitfall of technology and <laughs> <laughs> working from home. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but we definitely recommend um, groups of 12 to 15 at a max. You know, 15 is pushing it a little bit, but really keeping the numbers uh, lower so that we can um, allow the participants to take their time in every exercise of uh, that we, every exercise, every role play that they enter into. That's great. And how do you, um, just thinking about a standard, maybe one of the standard workshops that you, that you do, is there, how do you go about thinking about the agenda in terms of the, the sections that you're asking people to do? Are they is there a set time that you would not go over? So nothing over an hour or nothing over 20 minutes before a, a break. How do you kind of go about devising that structure? In a um, virtual environment, uh, we our sessions move very smoothly from one session into another. So a client may not even realize that they've actually been through three or four sessions in, let's say, a 45-minute, well, maybe even an hour time. They, they don't even realize because it runs smoothly. Um, in a virtual environment, generally after about 90 minutes, I, I would encourage a break. Um, some of our sessions are just 90 minutes um, per week for a group. So you're kind of timing it based on what's going to be comfortable for the group. But after about 90 minutes, I would definitely recommend taking a break and then resuming in, in, in a little bit. And um, virtually, it, it seems that um, groups that do take, when you do take a break, there's a, a high level of punctuality, people come back from that break on time, 
in a virtual environment, whereas in a um, in-person environment, that is wildly different, especially if you're in the contact center itself. When a supervisor group, and maybe they're uh, in one of our coaching workshops and really working on their coaching skills, the minute they step out of that conference room, someone on the floor grabs them for whatever question or need they have. So oftentimes in a, an in-person group, you'll find that people just, someone's missing when, when um, the, the break is over and you may not see them for another hour. So they're just gone. Whereas in a virtual environment, that doesn't seem to happen. If people are punctual, they come back and they're, they're ready for learning. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It is, it is definitely one of the pitfalls that I, I don't miss from the, you know, face-to-face sessions. It's interesting as well, because we we always set the expectation at the beginning, because that's all people really want to know, isn't it? When they, when they sit down for a session, they want to know, will I have a break? Am I going to be comfortable? What, what does this all mean? So to set those expectations right off the, the bat, that if it is 90 minutes, we likely won't uh, be breaking because to get you know, some really meaningful work done, we'll probably just go through. So we make sure that everybody there is is happy and comfortable and ready. We do little exercises to, you know, check check in with people and see how they're feeling attitudinally towards, towards learning. And we'll also make sure that people are encouraged to have a drink to hand as well. Uh, and yeah, and then if it's a longer session, and we definitely, to the vet's point, would encourage a break around the 90 minutes mark, if, if not before, if there's a natural pause, um, then we often tie that in with a group activity. So what we'll do is uh, administer breakout rooms, prime everybody to know, right, when you come back from getting yourself a drink and having a comfort break, you'll be in your breakout room, take that time, and then we'll come back together, you know, on the hour or half an hour uh, or whatever. So people kind of feel quite relaxed going into their breakout sessions that they've been able to fix themselves a drink or what have you. Yeah. Um. Does the icebreaker still have a place in the virtual world? And if so, what are your favorites? Hmm, really good question. Yes, we're seeing them work very successfully. Uh, part of the reason an icebreaker may be even more important in the virtual learning is um, you need that personal connection from the start. Um, in, in a virtual session, again, you're not relying as much on body language to convey messages and and uh, build that relationship with the group. So I think from the start, having an icebreaker, uh, you're getting to know the group a little bit. You're getting to um, really, um, right away, you're able to gauge who's comfortable speaking in front of the group, who may be a little bit more reluctant. You're able to really make a lot of decisions in how you're going to work with this group effectively. So an icebreaker can be really great for the presenter in a virtual environment, but it's also great for the, the attendees. They get to, right from the start, jump in with both feet and start interacting in some way. It could be a very minor uh, uh, point they make during the icebreaker or, or a statement that they make. They're already involved psychologically in, in that workshop. So I think it's really important. And icebreakers, there's so many different ones, but one of the ones that seems to really work really well, and Helen, uh, you and I have used it together with the groups, People really love talking about their first car. So, you know, one of the questions in an icebreaker that I use is just simply, you know, uh, tell me about your first car. What, what was your first car? And did you love it or did you hate it? No one's ever neutral about their first car. They always love it or hate it, one or the other. It's the extreme. But they love talking about their first car. And the only exception I've ever had uh, to that is our friend here, Helen, 
who proudly tells us you've never had a car. I don't drive. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a keen cyclist. (laughs) That's fantastic. Helen, have you got a different favourite or is that one of your favourites? What I've loved about that one is learning how much Americans love to talk about their first cars. It's, it's just, I, I love it. It's, um, yeah, I, I really do enjoy icebreakers. I'm quite a sociable person and I love the opportunity to make those connections and just let uh, the, the participants know that we're human um, and that we, we have a personality. And um, yeah, and, and a really good way to do that is to make a very lighthearted disclosure like I don't drive. For example, so yeah. I think we did. I did one the other day, and it was internal. Um, and we are we were asked to name a fun fact about ourselves. Yeah. And I learned so much about um, people that I've worked with for quite a long time. It was really good fun. Yeah, you do. You do. Another one that I haven't used um, with any of the sessions that we've done of that is asking people what's the uh, most mischievous prank they've ever pulled. I'd be careful with that with an American group. <laughs> you may learn too much. <laughs> well, as we, this has been really helpful. I think um, I've definitely learned something. But we're coming to we're coming to the end. I think. What would you like to leave people with in terms of maybe there's some people out there thinking about um, doing their own virtual training or engaging with virtual trainers? Obviously, hoping it, we they speak to us, but. Um, what's the kind of the key for you? What would you like people to take away from the one thing you'd like people to take away from this podcast? I would say, I would encourage any client thinking about training or workshops of any sort to really think through what they're looking to achieve. So is it an in-person environment and some of the benefits of in-person learning or is it the virtual environment that's going to fit for their group? and for their needs, to really think through the benefits. Look beyond cost or, or nuisances of booking training rooms or whatever it is, but really looking at what are the key benefits and what am I looking to achieve with my group. And I would encourage a client of, of considering training to really think that through and then talk to professionals like us about what really is the need of the group and how we can really facilitate that need, whether it's in-person or virtual learning. That's great. Helen, anything for me? I'd just encourage anyone, and I know that we're, you know, a year on in in this pandemic now, but anybody that still has any kind of lingering uh, biases against virtual training, just to really consider those and explore whether they uh, have, you know, a lot of the kind of um, arguments that we used to hear were it was either infrastructure, it was security, or it was just that personal bias, right? And the first two have kind of been very well uh, roundly addressed over the past year. Technology has got better. We've seen that it can be safe to, you know, all be connecting in. Um, so really all that, that's left there is whether people have the right attitude towards it as a, as a, as a possibility. And often that's personal preference. And to Yvette's earlier point, we've got the luxury again hopefully now as the world starts to open up of of choice but don't discount something that could really work for your business um just stop you know out of hand that's great uh helen and yvette thanks very much for coming on and sharing um, the benefits of your wisdom and um have a lovely day thank you for having us cheers martin thank you
I hope you enjoyed that. Yvette and Helen really do know their stuff. And if you'd like to know more, please just get in touch with either me or them. Loads of great guests still coming up. Um, as you know, the podcast isn't sponsored or there's no sales. I just have a link with a great charity called Naomi House, Jack's Place. It's a children's hospice that covers um, children and families in the south of England. And these are children with life-limiting illnesses. They do great work and I've done various um, events and some of you have been good enough to already donate. Um, please do, if you can, have a look at naomihouse.org. Uh, they do great work and they're always looking for new supporters and, and fundraisers. Um, just want to share a, a story about one of the children who has been at Naomi House and we get to hear from Ollie's mum talking about the great work that they do. Um, hope you're well. Keep up the great work we do, you do in contact centres. We are adding value and you have been awesome through the through the pandemic. And if you're interested in the podcast or want to just chat, please do get in touch. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Ollie is very, very cheeky. He loves people and loves life, smiles constantly, delights in making other people smile as well, just finds joy in life. Alternating hemiplegia of childhood means that any muscle in Ollie's body can become paralysed at any time. So obviously his arms and legs, but also the muscles that control his eyes. He has had a fixed and dilated pupil, which normally freaks medical people out a lot. And at that point, he still wasn't diagnosed, so that was an interesting hospital stay. It also affects his swallowing, um, so that he's now on a feeding tube. It affects his breathing, his heart, every single muscle. Ollie's breathing difficulties happen at night time as well as during the day and we've had to not know every time we wake up whether he's going to be alive or not. We never um, fully rest because there's always part of you that's got half an ear open. Anytime he does sleep, I'm in an absolute panic. And I always send Adrian in because I can't face the idea that I have to walk in and he might not be alive. We knew that for the rest of our lives we would never know where we were at from one minute to the next because there's no warning these episodes of weakness happen but to never know whether your child can stand or walk or when Ollie is going to stop breathing and how long he's going to stop breathing for. Effectively, we don't know he could die tomorrow or he could die in 10 years' time. We have no idea and no way to know. And obviously that's quite difficult to live with. Um, And we have to push it to the back of our minds and try and create that balance and have as much fun as we possibly can. When we go to Naomi House, we often spend time in the garden. They've got some amazing wheelchair bikes, so being able to be on a bike with Ollie is really, is really special. 
They absolutely love the sensory room. Lucy spends most of her time in the arts and crafts room. There is a lot of mess involved normally. The other thing that probably really important is it's the only place that we can swim as a family. So the hydro pool is really important. Going to a public pool just isn't an option as a family, but we can do that at Naomi House. Pretty much every day we're there, we go in the pool. It's one thing that both Lissy and Ollie really, really look forward to. The best thing about Naomi House, other than the amazing nurses and being there and not having to, to worry and when you've got medical emergencies, know that there's somewhere else to back you up. The cake's pretty good. <laughs> just a sense of relief and a sense of fun and being able to walk away at tea time and knowing that the nurses would put Ollie to bed and Lucy being able to give her for probably the first time ever time just her and Adrian and I it's a chance to just be mum and dad we don't have that time where we can not worry about medicines not worry about needing to change him and all of the care side of things and for somebody else to do that for us, as well as being able to sleep all night. On our most recent stay, the uh, comms team left out some baby shark costumes. And so I put the baby shark costume on and hid in the ball pool until they came in (laughs) and then jumped up and surprised them. So much screaming ensued. Making memories is really important to us as a family because it's being able to remember the good times and not have Ollie's diagnosis as something that clouds our memory. I don't want to be able to have to look back and only remember those things from Ollie's childhood and particularly the last few years and neither do I want Lissy to look back and not have fun memories. So having space where we can do crazy things like jumping in ball pits dressed as sharks is even more important. I'm incredibly proud of Ollie. He just lights up a room when he's in it and I know he's brought so much joy to so many people. I I really wouldn't change him for the world.